This is a shil ilush nishmalsim Ephraim Shmuel ben Avram Aria Cohen Chayat Tovabas Eliezer Mendel Hakohen on what is going to be the book of Yecheskel eventually. Uh, hopefully today will be the last year. There might just be a, a little bit to discuss at the beginning of the next year. Um, and uh, we're going to start now. I just want to something was brought to my attention. Um, uh, during the week by Larry. I just want to clarify something. People might be a little bit um, confused by something I said last week, but uh, I just want to make something very clear. Um, when we started our discussion of the oral law, I split it into, uh, split the oral tradition really into three separate parts. Firstly, uh, a raft of oral information dictated to Moshe Rabbeinu orally and preserved orally. This is called Halachal Moshe Misenai, uh, laws that were given orally to Moshe at Sinai. And that's what we have been discussing for the last couple of weeks, uh, or last week, certainly, we discussed the idea of the uh, Psukim in the Torah, that the oral law, the oral law was known to the rabbis. They, what they were doing was linking the Psukim, the verses, to the oral laws that were already known. That is... Somebody suggested that's a minority opinion. That is the opinion of every single Russian. Every single, there isn't one dissenting voice in that. What the, 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 I did mention there are two other issues I wanted to deal with, which is one of the ones, the one I'm going to deal with today, which is the idea of rabbis making legislation not related to the written law at all. Um, with that, that will be the subject of matter today, but there's, Thirdly, which we, we, won't, we won't discuss before we start Yechezkel, but we will discuss when we start the book of Yechezkel, is there's a, a, a subtle category um, between the two, between the laws that were given to Moshe orally and were uncontested, that everybody knew. And, uh, and that's at one extreme. The other extreme is rabbis creating laws with, without rela- re- referring to the written law at all. But in the middle, there is a subtle category, a subtle category where rabbis, rabbis have got the ability to interpret and imply material received from Moshe Rabbeinu. This category is a hybrid category. Its origins are from God via Moshe Rabbeinu, but its interpretation and application is based on the judgment of the rabbis. That is part of the oral tradition. That is not part of the oral law itself. It's alternate. It's part of the oral tradition. And the example this person gave to Larry, which is pointed, he pointed out to me, is the story in, um, a story in the Haggadah of Pesach, where uh, all of a sudden Benzoma pipes up with a halacha when you say the Shema. This fits into category three, where the oral law transmitted by Moshe directly was transmitted to Moshe directly was not given linkage into a particular possible that allows rabbis to interpret and apply the oral law and apply a in the Torah as they see fit now whether that has a category of a a din deraisa, a biblical obligation, or a din derabonon, a rabbinic obligation. That is something we will discuss in great detail when we come to the book of Yecheskel. But just to reiterate, the idea that uh, the oral information, the oral law that was dictated to Moshe Rabbeinu orally, uh, was preserved orally. I'll just quote you the words of the Rambam here. who, you know, represents the majority with the the only opinion. 
Um, the, the sages, uh, this is, a, I just want to show you this book. This is the seminal book on the oral law. This is, if you're going to read one book on the oral law, this is it. It's called The Dynamics of a Dispute, and it's written by Rav Tzvi Lampel, and it has got Haskamas from all Gadoli Yisrael. And uh, he writes here in his introduction, uh, um, he writes uh, regarding the third section, the third type of law. The sages were therefore able to find allusions, which are ramosim, which are hints, asmachtas, to some, certain clarifications by utilizing special rules of interpretation, which were also given to Moshe Rabbeinu. But because in many cases Moshe did not specify, specify exactly what letter, word or phrase hinted at, which qualification or which verse, there was room for disagreement in identifying a given clarification or clue in the written Torah. That is section three that we haven't dealt with yet. Though he writes, the law, the oral law itself, though, remained uncontested. That is the opinion of the Rambam. That is the opinion of the Ramban. That's the opinion of Rashi. That's the opinion of the Ramchal. That's the opinion of Rabbi Yosef Albo. It's the opinion of every single Rishon, the Ran, the Gaonim. There's no dispute about that. Where there is a dispute uh, and where we do have Machlokis in the Gemara is in the third category, where there is no specific linkage to be gained between an oral law and a posuk in the Torah, where it's left to the interpretation and clarification of the rabbis. Then there arises the idea of whether that clarification, that application of a specific law derived from a verse in the Torah has biblical power or rabbinic power. So when we come to that story, that the example that was given to me of, of Benzoma, that is the category we're talking about. Um, do I recommend a specific edition of Yecheskel? Really, any 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 copy of Yecheskel be good. I will be providing you with uh, the majority of the interpretations. Anyone that's learned Tanakh with me before will know that I I don't skimp on the commentaries. I read every, almost every single one. And those that uh, I feel are most appropriate, I will uh, bring into play. Um, so if you've got the text, the text, pop, uh, uh, preferably with Rashi, that would be the best thing to do. In, in any case, moving on to, to today, and what I wanted to do with you today is to go through uh, a specific type of oral law, oral, oral tradition that we have um, in relation to rabbis making up new laws legislation created by the rabbis that are unrelated to the written law. So you've got Sukkim in the Torah uh, that talk about Shabbos, and the rabbis come along and say, well, we, we, you know, we, we don't want you to do this, or we want you to do that, or the Torah says, blow the shofar on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, and the rabbis come along and say, when it's Shabbos, we don't want you to do that. The Torah says on the first day of, of uh, Sukkot, you, you shake a lulav. The rabbis come along and say, if it's Shabbos, we don't want you to do that. Where do the rabbis get the power to do that? Where do they get the power to create laws and even, so to speak, to contradict laws that specifically written in the Torah? So um, the authority of the rabbis to introduce brand new mitzvahs. Now, we know there are 613 mitzvahs in the Torah. If you look in the Shulchan Aruch, there are almost 613 mitzvahs on every page. And uh, the Shulchan Aruch goes on almost forever. So... 
you, out of the 613 mitzvahs, so you can, you've got 613,000 mitzvahs. So where do all these mitzvahs come from? And where is the authority that the rabbis have to introduce new mitzvahs? So the starting point is a posuk in Devorim, or a sex, section of Pesukim, verses in Devorim, in chapter 17, uh, verses 8 to 11. The Torah there discusses uh, a problem. It says, Ki um, If a matter eludes judgment, in other words, you're in Ranana, and you there's a, a, a litigation, and uh, the local based in can't decide. They haven't got enough information. They don't have the expertise to deal with the case. What do you do? So the Gomorrah, the Torah says, Ki Lamishpot, something that needs judgment. Bain dom la dom, whether it's to do with blood, in other words, uh, physical damage, or other issues relating to blood, which I'm not going to go into now. Bain din la din, whether it's to do with a financial issue. Bain nega la nega, whether it's to do with a specific law that relates to isavaheta uh, in relation to what's forbidden and what's allowed. Divrei ribas bisharecho. You've got, whatever it is, there are words of dispute in your cities. What should you do? The Torah says, You get up and you go to the place that God chooses. Um, So the place that God chooses, that's where you go. So what we get from this, from this verse, if there's a dispute between litigants and the local courts can't settle it, your, the Torah demands that you get up and you go to something that uh, appears to be like a supreme court that will deal with your case. Uvasa el, the next verse says, Uvasa el akoinim halavim, vela shofet ashe And you shall come to the, the Levite Kohen. Exactly what that means is uh, open to discussion, but certainly vela shofet, you come to the Sanhedrin, ashe yeh bayomim hohem that uh, are in those days, the t- in that time period, the Dorashta and uh, the Supreme, this Supreme Court shall, um, and the Dorashta, you shall inquire of them what the judgment is. They will give a Pesach Halacha. The Supreme Court will judge the matter and give you their decision. So the Torah then continues. And you shall do exactly what they tell you to do. When they are in that place, where God chooses. So that is talking about uh, basically going to the Sanhedrin. In, in the, the Mokom Hahu, that place is the place where the Sanhedrin sit, which we know from the oral tradition is the Lishkas Agozis which is the uh, place that's uh, an annex, so to speak, to the base of Migdosh. And you go there, and that's the place that God has chosen, and you will do exactly what they tell you to do when they're sitting in that place. Now, I've stopped in the middle of a verse here. Now, I started in verse 8, and I'm finishing in the middle of verse 10. From verses 8 through to the middle of verse 10, we have been told the following. What was my problem? We're in Ranana and we have a legal issue. The local courts can't settle it. So the Torah provides a solution. Go up to a place where God chooses, which is Yerushalayim. 
where there is a supreme body of judges called the Sanhedrin, and they will give you a solution to your legal issue. And number three, whatever those judges in Yerushalayim tell you to do, you are instructed to follow what they decide. And that is it. You do exactly what they tell you to do. Now, if the text had ended there after those words, that you have to follow exactly what, what they told you, then you would have had all the information you needed to understand how a dispute that couldn't be solved at a local level can be solved or resolved by a supreme body of judges in Yerushalayim. There are no instructions that are lacking here. Nothing. There's nothing more the Torah could have told you that you needed to know about a dispute that couldn't be settled locally, that you have to go to the the Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim, you pay, you tell them what the story is, and they give you judgment. The strange thing is, the Torah doesn't stop there, because I've stopped in the middle of a posuk. But the posuk continues. Now, what's very interesting, this is not the first time the Torah does it, and it's not the last time the Torah does it. We find very similar um, in Vayikra, uh, a very interesting passage in Vayikra, in Vayikra, um, let me just get it in front of me, in Vayikra, in chapter 11, um, let me just get the verses in front of me, yeah, so in Vayikra, chapter 11, the Torah tells you, Vayikra, chapter 11, God said, speak to, uh, God spoke to Moshe and Aaron to say to the Jewish people, Dabro Bnei Israel, speak to the children of Israel, Lema, and tell them, These are the animals, the creatures that you're allowed to eat among the animals that are on earth. Call Mafresis Parso, Vishosas Shesa Prosos, Malege Roba Bahema, Oso Tochelu. Any animal that has a cloven hoof, split hooves and uh, completely split into double and choose the cud you can eat from that from no from that verse alone you can decide if a cat's kosher if a chazer's kosher if a donkey's kosher if a lamb is kosher any animal on the planet you have got enough information there to understand what type of animal is kosher if it has these two simonim these two signs, it's kosher. If it doesn't, it's not kosher. But the Torah doesn't stop there because the Torah goes on. These are things you can't eat. You got a camel. It, it chews the cud, but it doesn't have split hues. You can't eat it. Well, we knew that already. Then it says the shafan, exactly the same. It also chews the cud, but doesn't have split hooves. You can't eat it. Well, we knew that already. Veso arnevis, and there's an arnevis, it's a type of hair. It also chews the cud, uh, but uh, it doesn't have a, 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 a split hooves. That you can't eat either. That's already Tommy. We already know that. But esachazir, and there's a chazir, 
Ki mafris parasohu, because that's the other way around. The pig has got, uh, um, uh, cloven hooves, split hooves. Um, vishisa shesa parasohu, hu geirolo yigar tomeu lochem. But it doesn't chew the cud, and therefore you can't eat it. But we already knew that. Why does the Torah add these extra indications? So, in Vayikra, there's a long drosha, which is not of interest to us at the moment, because it's not our subject matter. But you can be sure, if the Torah could have stopped, the Torah is known for its brevity. If the Torah could have stopped after giving you all the information you needed, it would have done. Getting back to our case, the Torah could have stopped at the point where it told you, you've got a problem, you're in Renana, you've got a legal issue, the local courts can't settle it, the Torah provides a solution, go to Yushalayim, go to the Sanhedrin, present your case, listen to what they say, do exactly what they tell you. But that's not what the Torah does. The Torah goes on. The Torah um, goes on for another posse and a half, unbelievably. And um, it goes on, it says as follows, And you shall observe and do according to everything they instruct you to do. And you shall observe and do everything they instruct you. What is the and here? The and is just repeating what he just told you. That you should do exactly what they told you. So why does it have to go and tell you again? But the problem is even worse. Because that might be the end of it. Okay, so the Torah is stressing the fact that you've got to listen to them. No, the Torah has got another possible. The next one. Alpiha Torah. According to the laws of the Torah. That they instruct you on. And according to any judgment they say to you, you shall do. You shall not divert from the words they tell you, right or left. Half of verse 10 and the whole of verse 11 is absolutely superfluous. It's telling you something you don't need to know. What's all this extra stuff about? Starting in the middle of verse 10 through to the end of verse 11, it's all seemingly repetitive stuff. Now, for those of you who are Americans, so uh, there's some Americans there. So for those of you who are Americans, so you'll know, in the United States, there is something called the Supreme Court um, that has extensive powers. Um, its powers extend even, a, that uh, are so extensive that even allows them to strike down a law that they deem to be unconstitutional um, and in direct contradistinction to the U.S. United States contra, uh, Constitution. But they can only do so when a case is brought before the court. Imagine, for example, the legislature of California passed a law that every member of the Supreme Court believe is unconstitutional. You've got nine Supreme Court judges, and they're looking at California, and they see they've just passed a law that uh, they believe, every single member of them, they have a little meeting, have lunch together, and they say, this law is unconstitutional. They can't do anything about it until the case has passed through all the lower courts, until finally, when the lower courts have all been used up, then it might get to the Supreme Court, and then they can pass out judgment on this legislation. 
This process, anyone that's ever done and learned or studied anything about American jurisprudence will know this process can take years. In essence, the Supreme Court of the United States is only a judicial body. That's what it is. It's a judicial body. When a case gets to them, they can rule. Now, if you believe the court that's being described here in the Torah, in Devorim, is also only a judicial body and therefore can only settle issues that are brought before it, then the verse would have stopped in the middle of verse 10. And the Torah would have read like this. When you have a problem with a mishpat, with a, with a judgment, anywhere in the land it can't be sold in the land. What do you do? You should go up to the Supreme Court in Yerushalayim that God has chosen. And you should sit before, it's not nine justices, it's 71 justices, which is, is the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. Then they will tell you the law. They will give you their decision. Whatever they decide in the Supreme Court is the law. Full stop. But the Torah doesn't stop there. The Torah wants you to know some more information about this body of Supreme Judges. That they are not just a court that can act when a case is brought before them. They can do a lot more than that. And that's why the Torah continues to tell you the and the shomarto lasos kolashayarucha. In addition to the case law that they decide on a case by case basis, in addition, the shomarto, you must observe and do everything they teach you. What's that? What is everything they teach you? Says the next verse, verse 11. Al piha Torah, according to the rules of the Torah. Asher Yorucha, things that they teach you. Vala Mishpat Asher Yomrulacha and any judgment that they say to you, you shall do. Lo Sosum in Hadavar Asher Yagidulacha, you shall not divert yourself from the, anything they tell you, either right or left. The Torah is telling you that the additional powers of this Sanhedrin extend well beyond the powers of a normal Supreme Court. They have the powers to teach and they have the powers to judge above and beyond settling outstanding personal or national issues that come before them for a judicial decision. What do these two additional powers that the Supreme Court are vested in with by the Torah entail? The right of interpretation of the Torah, Alpi Hatorah Asheya the right of interpretation of the Torah to teach you about the Torah, and the right to ex- enact their own legislation. They have the right to introduce new legislation. These two powers are indicated by the supposed extra words. In the end of verse 10 and the whole of verse 11. The Rambam um, quotes this verse, this pasuk, 
verse 11. Um, chapter 17, verse 11. As the source of the powers of the rabbis. So in relation to the issue that we are concerned with in section 2, which is what we're dealing with now, where do the rabbis get their authority to introduce brand new mitzvahs? The answer is from this verse, from these words, the al-hamishpat which on the surface seems to be superfluous, but an examination of the text, as the Rambam uh, tells you in the Yisoda HaTorah, in the fundamentals of the Torah, the foundations of the Torah, this is the source that the rabbis have the right to introduce new legislation. So, understanding the source of authority of the rabbis um, comes from the Torah itself. And from this verse, we can deduce that the rabbis can introduce new legislation. Um, but on that basis comes a fundamental question. You know, there's a question here. Who's asking you? Strictly speaking, there is a lesser Sanhedrin too, which is 23 judges. Yes, there is a Sanhedrin of 23 judges. Uh, that's dealt with in the Gomorrah and Sanhedrin. I don't know if you're with us when we learned the Gomorrah and Sanhedrin, but uh, that's dealt with in the Gomorrah Sanhedrin when it comes to introducing legislation, uh, full legislation that um, um, has the power over the Jewish world. You have to have a Sanhedrin of 71. Uh, a Sanhedrin of 23, which is a, a small Sanhedrin, does have the right to execute people, but it doesn't have the right to introduce national legislation. Uh, only a Sanhedrin Yushalayim. Only uh, the Lishka Sagozis. When the, the Sanhedrin, the question will arise is if the Sanhedrin are not sitting in the base of Migdosh, uh, by the base of Migdosh. They've, they've been exiled somewhere else, whether they can introduce legislation. That's a different question. But there's a, the, the, the fundamental issue here is that they can introduce legislation, and we know it from the apostle. Uh, where is Rabbi's authority to require us to recite the bracha with the words, I share when there is no posik in the Torah to support that? I'm coming to that. Um, you sh- if you would have been here for the Derech Hashem Shirim, when we dealt with the Ramchal, uh, how he understands why and how the rabbis introduce brochas, you'd know the answer to that. But I'll, I'll repeat it. If I've not repeated it uh, yet, I, uh, uh, I will do with it because it goes to the f- fundamental question is when rabbis introduce legislation, what power does it have? Does it have rabbinic power or does it have Torah power? If it has Torah power, then your question becomes mute. Because then you can argue that the rabbis are introducing uh, legislation and the legislation they introduce is biblically binding. And if it's biblically binding, then they've got the right to introduce a bracha that says, With me? If it's, not, if it's only rabbinically binding, then they've got no business doing that. So we'll, we'll come to that shortly, uh, that issue. But we have to ask a fundamental question. And this is, uh, Efri, this is a great segue to this fundamental question that we're going to deal with today. What is the status authority or authority of new laws that the rabbis introduce? After all, isn't it true that, number one, three issues to bear in mind. Rabbinic laws are much less stringent than biblical laws. After all, if there is a conflict between a rabbinic and biblical law, almost always the biblical law wins. 
almost always. I did mention obvious exceptions, that the rabbis have got the right to tell you to be passive in relation to a positive commandment. They can tell you not to blow uh, shofar and Rosh Hashanah that falls on Shabbos. But they can't tell you to actively violate a negative commandment. They can't say, we want you to eat a cheeseburger. They can ask you to be passive, but they can't ask ask you to be active, actively um, transgress a direct posuk in the Torah. So what we want to know is, uh, what is the status? What is the authority of new laws from scratch that rabbis introduce? After all, number one, rabbinic laws, as we said, are much less stringent than biblical laws. Uh, as I said, if there's a conflict between a rabbinic and a biblical law, almost always the biblical law wins. That's the first point to mention. The second point to mention is if, say, I forgot I did a particular mitzvah. I forgot. I forgot whether I, uh, I davened married last night. The rule is, if it's a biblical law, then I have to go back and do it again. If it's a rabbinic law, then I don't, which certainly implies there's a difference in stringency between a biblical law and a rabbinic a law introduced by the rabbis. The third thing, th- thing to bear in mind is the penalties for a violation of a biblical law seem a lot more stringent than that for a, for a rabbinic law. The, the extent to which the rabbis can punish you is they can give you a good hiding, give you what's called macus maridus. If you don't, if you fail to appear in front of a basin when summoned, or you do th- something chutzpanit to a basin, so they can give you a, uh, give you a schmeiss. The Torah can order you being executed. So you've got a, you've got a huge gap there in penalties for violations of biblical law as opposed to uh, penalties of violations of rabbinic law. So these three issues, number one, that the rabbinic laws are much less stringent than, than biblical laws. Um, the second thing is if you forget a rabbinic mitzvah, you don't have to go back. You forgot whether you did it or not. You don't have to go back and do it. Whereas a, a biblical law, you do. If you can't remember where you said the Shema, you have to go back and say it. And thirdly, the penalties for violation of biblical laws are much more stringent than rabbinical laws. Doesn't all these three differences indicate that rabbinic law carries less weight, less significance than biblical laws? That's what these three issues seem to indicate. But the truth is not like that. That is not the truth. Almost all halachic halachic, halachic authorities, almost all, there are uh, dissenters. But uh, well over 90% of halachic authorities hold that rabbinic laws are biblically binding. Now, let's explain two things. First of all, how is it possible that rabbinic laws are biblically binding? And if they are, then how do you explain away the three issues, the three differences between them that we raised just before? After all, the penalties are different. After all, if you forgot a rabbinic mitzvah, you don't have to go back. And after all, after all, if there's a conflict between a, a, a biblical law and a rabbinic law, so you, you in, in almost all instances, you obey the biblical law. So, how is it possible that rabbinic laws are biblically, rabbinic laws are biblically binding? And if they are, how do we explain the differences between uh, the rabbinic laws and the biblical laws that we raised just now. 
So I'm going to give you an, an analogy. Um, I'm going to deal with the first question first. Uh, how is it possible that rabbinic laws are biblically binding? So I'll give you an analogy. Imagine a king. A king appointed Ringo to be governor of a particular province. And uh, so Ringo there travels to the province, to provincial capital, and enters his new offices and puts on uh, on the wall his royal warrant that shows he's the new governor and he's been appointed by the king, indicating his right to judge and pass new legislation. He then proceeds to introduce some new legislation and issues a decree that it's now illegal to watch Manchester United play football, either at the stadium or on TV. Now, one of the guys living in the province disregards the new law and brazenly travels to the great city of Manchester to watch Manchester United play. As he returns to the province, he is promptly arrested and taken to the police station and charged with treason against the king. Paul's response to being charged with treason is, in what way was my act treason against the king? After all, it was the governor, Ringo, that introduced this law, not the king. I am 100% loyal to the king. It's only this nutter, this madman, Ringo, who made this ridiculous law uh, that I decided was unfair. And I admit I transgressed one of Ringo's laws. In passing sentence, the judge will have to say this. Ringo has the authority of the king. There is a royal proclamation that Ringo's laws are binding. Anyone who violates Ringo's laws is violating, by definition, the king's laws. The royal proclamation that Ringo's laws are binding means that any law Ringo passes has the stamp of the king on them. Consequently, the laws of the rabbis have God's authority behind them. When God says, Lo sosur min hadova asha yagidulacha yomin usmal, you must not divert from anything they tell you, left or right. So, it seems to be, and this is the, uh, this is brought down in the Rambam, brought down in the Ramban, the Ramchal discusses it in the, uh, Sefer Ekorim, in the Essay on Fundamentals. Uh, it appears, that a rabbinic law has the same authority as putting on tefillin, as shaking a lulav, as not eating cheeseburgers. They are of equal value. Now, the question is, which I'm not going to deal with, the question is, well, I will deal with it. Okay, I'll deal with it in a second. Now on to, let's deal with question two. So we've, we've sort of demonstrated via analogy that since God himself, the king, has given his authority, his warrant, his royal warrant to the rabbis to pass laws. Therefore, the laws that they pass have royal status behind them. They have biblical status behind them. So the question remains, if that's true, that rabbinic laws are biblically binding, then why are rabbinic laws much less stringent than biblical laws? After all, as we said, if there's a conflict between rabbinic and biblical, almost always the biblical law wins. Secondly, if you forget, if you did a particular mitzvah, the general rule is a biblical one, you go back and do it again. 
a rabbinic one, you don't. And thirdly, the penalties for violation of biblical law seem much more stringent than for a rabbinic law. So the answer, and this is, uh, again, uh, brought down by many Rishonim, it's itemized again. Um, this is uh, for Mark May, who's a, a new devotee of the Ramchal, also brought down in the, uh, um, essay, the Ramchal's essay on fundamentals. He says, the, and this is, again, the opinion of almost all the Rishonim, that the rabbis chose to write their laws to be less stringent than biblical laws. It was their choice. They wrote into their laws, do X, and if a situation arises where you can't remember if you did X, then we don't want you to go back and redo it. And they wrote into their legislation, do X. But if a situation arises where X conflicts with a biblical law, then we don't want you to do X. And they wrote into their laws, do X. And if you don't do X, this is the penalty. And the penalties that they introduced were uniformly more lenient than their biblical equivalents. The reason the rabbis structured their laws in this way was to ensure that people did not confuse a biblical and rabbinic law. Not that they got any different set, sets of powers, but that a person shouldn't confuse a rabbinic law and a biblical law. The rabbis wanted to ensure that their right to make new laws has royal assent, royal assent rather, but not to the extent where people would confuse the two. The rabbi's modus operandi in this respect is also derived from the Torah. Another posset from the Torah. Their modus operandi, the way they operate, comes from the Torah. The Torah says in Devorim, in chapter 4, Lo so sifu ala sigru. Do not add to the words of the Torah which I command you, nor diminish from it. Don't add, don't take away. The oral tradition understands the words of this possible mean lo so sifu ala sigru. Do not add to the words which I command you in a way that it would appear to be a biblical law. But if they add a law, which we showed before they are permitted to do, based on the Pesukim in Devorim in chapter 17, and it is clearly delineated as rabbinic, then that is within their purview. So here you have a conglomeration of Pesukim in Devorim from chapter 17, verses 8 to 11, and a Pesuk in Devorim chapter 4, verse 2, that gives... On the one hand, the rabbis, the authority to create new legislation, and on the other hand, is limiting to them to make sure that the legislation they introduce cannot be confused with Torah law, because the Torah insists that all the laws of the Torah be known as Torah laws to the people, and all the rabbinic laws be known to the people as rabbinic laws. The authority, however, is exactly the same. Any questions up to here? Not a word. Okay. 
There's one more issue that needs to be addressed in relation to new rabbinic decrees. There's a Gemara in Baba Kama. The Gemara in Baba Kama says as follows. That She'ain Gozrin Gezeira Al-Atziba Al-Imkain Rov Hatsibo Yecholin Lamodbo. That uh, the rabbis, the Sanhedrin, are not allowed to introduce legislation on the community, on the people of Israel. Ela'imkain, unless rov tzibo yecholim lamodbo, unless the majority of the people of Israel can stand it. In other words, will tolerate it. The Rambam on this Gemara, this is in the Hilchus Mamrim. In the second paragraph of Hilchus Mamrim, the laws of rebellious rabbis, in uh, chapter two, Halacha Hey, fifth Halacha, he writes as follows: When a Beistin sees it necessary to issue a decree and create new, legisla- new legislation, or institute a new edict, or establish a new custom, they must first comp- contemplate the matter and see whether or not the majority of the community can and will uphold the practice. We never issue a decree on the community unless the majority of the community can uphold the practice. What the Rambam is telling you is there is direct democracy in relation to rabbinic decrees. If the majority of the people reject the law, the Sanhedrin must revoke it. Now, This is in stark contrast to what we view as indirect democracy. We've just had an election in the United States, which uh, is a shambles to say the very least. Let's talk about how it's done in the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, the empire is not gone, Efri. It's still there. The sun will never set on the British Empire because God doesn't trust the British in the dark, as you well know. So... How does it work in England? Well, you have constituencies and you vote for your MP and the MP gets voted and he tells you what he's going to do. And then he sweet talks you, gets himself elected and then he waits to Parliament does exactly what he wants for the next five years. You've got no comeback. Your democracy ends when you put an X in the box. In, In Judaism, the opposite is true. You get no say who the your member of parliament is. There are no members of parliament. In the Jewish, legis- in the Jewish um, structure of government, there is a king unelected. There is a novi, a prophet, unelected. There is a Kohen Godol, unelected. There is a Sanhedrin, unelected. The Sanhedrin are the legislative body. They pass legislation. But, and here's the big but, any legislation that they pass must have the common assent of the common people. It is a requirement of a Sanhedrin when they issue a decree, a rabbinic law, that they issue the decree, they give it 12 months or sometimes 18 months. If they discover that the majority of the Jewish people are not observing it, they have to revoke it. They're required by Torah law to revoke it. The rule is based on a Gomorrah in Avodah Though some of you are learning Gomorrah Avodah with me. This is the Gomorrah we're going to come to on Daf Lamed Vav on page 36. Um, uh, the Gomorrah there is talking about, uh, you know, there's a decree that we don't eat um, 
we don't uh, we don't have goishka wine. Well, we do. We don't eat goishka wine, right? Non-Jewish wine. Now, there's a Torah uh, prohibition of drinking wine that is used for avodah that is used for pagan practice. We're not talking about that type of wine. We're talking about regular wine that you buy in an off-license, that you buy in a, a drugstore. A bottle of wine, a bottle of goisha wine that's got no connection to paganism. There's a gazera de Rabon on that you're not, the Jew is not allowed to drink it. It's called Stam Yayin. And there's an Issa de Rabon on to drink it. At the same time, as that decree was introduced, the rabbi, the Sanhedrin, also introduced a decree that olive oil, not manufactured by Jews, was also also for the same reasons. And the reason is chasnos. We don't want you intermingling. If you break bread, the tradition wants to break bread, you dip the bread in olive oil. If you, you, you have a meal with somebody, so you have a glass of wine with them. The rabbis didn't want you mixing with non-Jews. So they made to these two gazeras. No stam yayin and no, no uh, uh, shemen zayis. The, if you notice today, the rule about stam yayin still stands. If a goy, if a, a, a non-kosher bottle of wine is also, it doesn't matter where it comes from. But the law about olive oil, the Jewish people rejected. They said, we're not having that. We're not schlepping to, we're not schlepping to another town to get our olive oil. Olive oils, uh, you know, we need it every day. It's part of our, our staple diet and we're not abiding by it. So the Sanhedrin revoked that gazera. Some say it was a gazera introduced by Doniel or some say it was Ezra. So there's a machlokis there in the Gemara, but, uh, but in any case, that, that is, that is the idea here, that the rabbis have got the uh, authority to introduce a rule. The rule itself carries biblical authority, but the rule is ruled by direct democracy. In that, although a Torah law can never be overturned, a rabbinic decree can be overturned by common consent or common agreement or common rejection of the um, of the masses. Now, the Gemara there, and I'll just read you a, a small section from the Gemara there in uh, Avodah Zorah. The Gemara says, what is the reason that none of the 18 decrees uh, that Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai jointly uh, imposed, that's the Gemara in Shabbos, um, uh, so the Gemara wants to know what's the reason that none of those 18 decrees that the Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel uh, imposed on the Jewish people can be voided, can be set aside. So the Gemara says since the prohibition spread among the majority of the Jewish people, it cannot be voided. In other words, the 18 decrees that were agreed between Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai that are outlined in the Gemara in Shabbos uh, attained assent by common by common, um, what's the word? By common acceptance of the masses. But with regard to the oil, its prohibition did not spread among the majority of the Jewish people. And therefore, it was voided. As Rabbi Shmuel Abba said, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, our rabbis sat and inspected the matter of Shemen Zayis, uh, a non-Jewish goishka, Shemen Zayis and determined that its prohibition had not spread among the majority, majority of the Jewish people. And the Gemara then says that the Chazal relied upon the statement of Rabbi Shimingam and Leo and the statement of Rabbi Lozben Tzodak Tutanoim, who said that the rabbis uh, 
issue a decree on the community only if the majority of the community can abide by it, which is the statement I made just before, which is a statement that's brought by the Rambam. She'ein gozrin gezeir ala tzibur, ala imkein rov tzibur yecholim lamod It's illegal to force on the community a rabbinic law that the Jewish people want to reject. The Gemara quotes a posset from Malachi that teaches us that there is the acceptance of the whole nation uh, then yes, a decree of the rabbis, new legislation written into statute becomes law. But if not, then the law is discontinued. So we have another difference between rabbinic and biblical law is that biblical law is imposed from the top and cannot be set aside. Rabbinic law is suggested from the top. And when accepted by the majority of the people, becomes imposed with the same authority of biblical law. Let me just repeat that. This is the demarcation between a rabbinic law and a biblical law. Biblical law is imposed from the top and cannot be set aside. A rabbinic law is suggested from the top. And when accepted by the majority of the the people, become an impo become it becomes imposed and it becomes imposed with the same authority of, as a biblical law so now here comes the 65 million dollar question who's got a question can public rejection of the prohibition be rescinded today uh, no we don't have a sanhedrin it's got to be uh, it's got to be rescinded by a sanhedrin unfortunately we don't have a sanhedrin so, uh, we, we don't have a Sanhedrin. So, uh, uh, Jimmy, what do you mean electricity on Shabbos? I don't know what you mean by that. What, like writing a text message on Shabbos? Efri, do you want to? No, okay. The issue, the issue of uh, using electricity on Shabbos, unless it had been uh, prearranged before Shabbos, is deemed to be also today, but it's a complete uh, new idea. So on what basis did the Rabbanim of early 1900s decide electricity on Shabbos is on? You can't switch on the electricity. Okay, so there's a machlokis, uh, uh, I'll answer your question, there's a machlokis achronim between the um, the Mishnabrura and the Orach HaShulchan, um, um, now, it's not generally known, but uh, in our world, the world we live in, uh, everybody follows the opinion of the Mishnah Brewer. You should know that in the yeshiva world, everyone follows the opinion of the Orach HaShulchan, right? Um, Rabbi Yechiel Michal Epstein, right? The Orach HaShulchan. Okay, be that as it may. The, the Mishnah Brewer, uh, the Chovetz Chaim, Paskins, that, uh, that uh, electricity is also on Shabbos to use, to, uh, to, to switch a light on Shabbos. The Orach HaShulchan says it's mutter. Neither of them really understood the mechanics because the physics wasn't available at the time. Subsequent to those two opinions, there have been many rabbis that have suggested reasons why, for example, turning on a light on Shabbos is an Isidiraisa, is a biblical prohibition. Binyan, Bishul, Bone, uh, Maccabapatish, uh, there's been six or seven suggestions. There is an essay 
It was written by Reb Shlomo Zaman Orbach, Zechot Tzadlik one of the Poskei Hadar, in which he examines, he called together all the great, uh, great and good of the world of physics into his office, locked the door and grilled them about the nature of lights and electricity and everything else. And he came out with a, uh, a discussion document, which he said shouldn't be taken as his opinion, La Halacha, in which he examined everybody's opinion of why electricity, switching on a light on Shabbos, is an Isidia and he rejects them all. His conclusion is that the reason why Jews do not switch lights on on Shabbos is because Jews don't switch lights on on Shabbos. That is his maskana. That, he says, has become the minhag, and Jews don't do that sort of thing. So you want to read that. It's an amazing uh, maskana, right? You, the whole thing. I read the whole thing. It's, uh, it's 25 pages long, and he deals with every single issue that could be raised. And that's his maskana. Jews don't switch lights on the Shabbos. You know why? Because Jews don't switch lights on. It's a very Jewish answer, right? That's the Jewish answer. Um, but in relation to rescinding a Gezerah Darabon, we can't do it. For, I'll give you an example. A Gezerah Darabon that's uh, today, right? We, we know there's a Gezerah Darabon that we don't take medicine on Shabbos, right? You don't take medicine on Shabbos. Why is that? The rabbis introduced it because in the old days, to take medicine, you used a pestle and mortar and pestle. And you took the herbs and you grinded them in a mortar, was it a mortar and pestle or whatever it's called. And that's an isidiorice. You're not allowed to grind on Shabbos. It's tochen. It's, a, it's an avmalocha. It's a primary category of issa. And it's asa. So we don't take medicine on Shabbos. I today, all you've got to do is open a, uh, a bottle of paramol, right? There's no grinding if you've got a headache today. I why isn't the gazera been lifted? So the gazera has not been lifted because... It's a Gezerah Darabonon. We don't have the power to lift the Gezerah Darabonon. I, if you ask me, I've got a headache. Can I take a pill? I'll say yes. I'll say yes. But strictly speaking, a Gezerah Darabonon cannot be dislodged. I just want to um, finish off with dealing with one of the most important questions. One of the most important questions, and this is a question that's raised by some of the Rishonim, and uh, again, for Mark May's benefit, it's also raised by the Ramchal, in a couple of places, if rabbinic and biblical law have exactly the same authority, then why did God not write all the rabbinic laws in the Torah itself, rather than wait for the rabbis to introduce them? So, you could say, well, you know, if the Torah contained uh, all these laws in the Torah, all the rabbinic laws in the Torah, the Torah would be a very big document indeed. Well, Okay, so that'd be a big document. Then you could ask the question, well, how could God write the laws of Purim and Hanukkah, which are rabbinic into the Torah, when the events they commemorate hadn't even happened yet? And Haman hadn't even been born yet? And the Greeks had never bumped into the Hashmanayim? This answer is wrong. This answer is terribly wrong. Because God could have written certain trigger conditions into laws as follows. Under circumstances A, B, C, introduce laws, for example, like X, Y, Z, and record and commemorate the event, as God has done or did many times in the Torah. Some of the laws of the land of Israel, Shemitah, Yovel, which were given at Har Sinai, were only triggered 40 years later when they entered the land. 
The fact is the Torah is full of laws that are triggered by certain circumstances occurring. The word im, im, meaning if or when, is used hundreds of times in the Torah, indicating that if or when certain events occur, this is what you are supposed to do. So it could be that God could have written into the Torah under certain, if, if you are invaded by a foreign power and you miraculously manage to remove them, then make a commemorative day to, uh, to, uh, make a commemorative day to, uh, remember it by and, uh, and treat it as a, uh, a festival. Good, good. The Torah could have done that. So that's not the answer why God didn't do it. The answer is very shocking. The answer is this. God wanted the rabbis. God wanted the rabbis. And he wants you and me. You and me. But originally he wanted the rabbis to instruct these laws so that we, the Jewish people, should have a share in creating Torah. This answer on the face of it appears to be quite daring and even shocking. That how could it be that we, the Jewish people, have the right to instruct laws in order to create Torah. But if you reflect on the nature of the relationship, which is something that we dealt, we dealt with in great detail in the Derech Hashem, if you reflect on the relationship between the Jewish people, the Jewish people and God, the Jewish people and God in Kedusha, you get to the realization that this answer is perfectly, perfectly in line with the to- tone of the Torah. The holiness of Yerushalayim, the Kedusha of Yerushalayim, and the Kedusha of the land of Israel, and the expansion of the borders of Yerushalayim, and the expansion of the Kedusha of the land of Israel, is by decree of the rabbis. We create Kedusha. An animal or some flower has no Kedusha. When you nominate it as a sacrifice in the base of Migdosh, magically it becomes Kodesh by your nomination. An ordinary wet Wednesday can be transformed into a Yomtev, Kedusha's Yomtev. As we said, as we discussed when we discussed the Ramcha, when we say the Brocha, um, uh, which we say in the, in the Shemona Esrei on the Chagim, Makadesh um, Yisrael v'Hazmanim. God gave Kedusha to the Jewish people to introduce a Yom Tov. We create a Yom Tov. We create a calendar. A person can take a vow not to eat lettuce. Lettuce now becomes as forbidden to him as a cheeseburger. His vow has created a new law that has biblical force on him. So, and this is what we'll finish with. And next week we'll start with the book of Yechezkel. Great timing. The Torah itself has built into it certain, and they are limited, really limited, areas of expansion where I can create new Torah norms and which have echoes in other areas of the Torah. So what we, what God's plan is, not just for the rabbis, for us 
Every Jew, you learn a piece of Gomorrah, you have an idea. We've had plenty of times in this year, in the Ramchal Shia, where somebody said something and I'm like, oh my word, I've never heard that before. I've heard it from Larry, I've heard it from various people, Joan especially, comes out with stuff. And people come out with stuff all the time. And it's new. And it's never been heard before. And it's a Chiddush. And you're adding to the Torah. God wanted to create a situation where Jewish people, rabbis foremost, can add, can create new Torah. We do it by our learning. The rabbis do it in general to create gedorim, to create uh, fences around the Torah in order to protect us from ourselves. But the idea of Jewish people and rabbis creating Torah is nothing new. It's part and parcel of everyday Jewish life. Now, what we, what we conclude from here is that the power of rabbinic law has the power of biblical law. The question which I'll leave you with, which I'm not going to answer, which I will answer during uh, one or two of the shirim, when we learn Yecheskel, is if you break a rabbinic law, how many laws are you breaking? Let me ask you a question. The rabbis say mobile phones are muksa. You pick up a mobile phone on Shabbos. How many Aveiras have you done? Possibly two. What are they? Well, one is to touch the phone, and the second is to disobey the rabbis. So one is Drabonon, and one is... The one to pick up the phone is, a, is definitely a Durabonon, right? But it's got the power of a Deraisa because you've disobeyed the rabbis. So you've got a two-in-one, which seems on the surface to make it even more strict than a regular biblical prohibition. Because in a regular biblical prohibition, you're only transgressing a biblical law. When you transgress a rabbinic law, you're transgressing both a rabbinic and a biblical law. Okay, that is a paradox, but we will deal with that issue um, when we come to it, and we will come to it in the book of Yechezkel. Um, right, just, I just want to prepare you. Next week, we will, uh, I'm not going to deal with the, um, um, as I mentioned, I, I'm not going to deal with this, this particular issue, which is the third category. The third category is uh, a category where rabbis interpret and apply the material that was received from Moshe Rabbeinu in Har Sinai. Uh, it's a hybrid category where the law is, has its origins at Sinai, um, but it's in, its application is based on the judgment of the rabbis. We will not deal with that subject matter. We will deal with that subject matter when we hit it in Yechezkel. And next week, again, people, please have the Sefer Yechezkel in front of them, preferably with, with Rashi. Um, what we'll do first is, obviously, everyone that has learned Tanakh with me knows that uh, we have to have an introduction to the Sefer. I will send to Larry um, a handout, which is a timeline in relation to Yechezkel, when he lived, and um, the period he lived in, and the events that surrounded his period of life in the land of Israel and his life in exile. 
So that's all to come next week. I want to thank you all for attending and uh, paying such close attention. And uh, what's this? Can public rejection of prohibition be rescinded? No, we had that question already. Um, I'd just like to wish you a Hanukkah Sameach and, uh, for the rest of the week and uh, a Gittin Shabbos. And please, God, next uh, Monday we will begin the long road through the book of Yechezkel, please, God. Call to everybody. If anybody's got a question. Thank you. 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 Thank you.